Hello, everyone. This is Marcin Drozd. Welcome again to another episode with uh, the game. Uh, today, we are fortunate to have Dylan Gallagher with us. He is the uh, entrepreneur's entrepreneur, founder of a company called Bridge Capital, uh, an investment and business advisory firm focused on entrepreneurs fix, fund, and grow their businesses. Uh, Dylan uh, comes to us here with decades of lending and investing experience, uh, started out in real estate construction development, and has uh, been involved in a wide variety of different companies, uh, most notably in uh, fixing and uh, you know helping entrepreneurs through uh, challenging circumstances. Uh, Dylan, welcome to the game. Thanks, Martin. It's uh, nice of you to invite me onto your, onto your podcast. I appreciate you coming. Well, 2020 coming into quarter two now, we've had uh, uh, quite the uh, start to 2020. Certain was certainly wasn't the way uh, any of us, uh, myself included, uh, expected it uh, to start here. Um, what are you guys seeing over at Bridge Capital? More, more of the same. I mean, we is already involved in working with companies that are in trouble. And so what we've experienced over the last eight weeks uh, the, the way I describe it is really just an accelerant on what was already happening uh, with clients that we were working with. So if you were in trouble before COVID, you're probably really in trouble right now. If your business was a little bit wobbly going into COVID, then all of the factors that you would have you know, come up against with time, you're now just hitting at an accelerated rate. Yeah. So if you were, if you were having uh, fundamental issues in your business, those issues are much more uh, prevalent today than they would have been, you know, a few months past. Yeah, and the the statistics tell us pretty consistently across North America that by by an entrepreneur's fifth year in business, fifty uh, percent of them would have failed. Before COVID, there was some measure of fifty percent of entrepreneurs on their way to failure, uh, with or without the help of someone like like myself and our firm. Um, and all COVID has done has now just accelerated that five-year window into probably five weeks. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so, yep. you know, in one respect, obviously, um, you know, I, I feel uh, badly for entrepreneurs that are in the middle of a hurricane right now, because at least over those five years, as an entrepreneur, you get a chance to, to work through the issues and you mm-hmm. have some time on your side and, and you generally have uh, options. Uh, certainly in this compressed moment as an entrepreneur fending off, you know, cash flow problems, trying to figure out whether your product or service is even relevant anymore, uh, working remotely. Like these are, these are very serious challenges that are being faced and they're not to be made lightly. Uh, it's tricky, uh, for sure. So my heart goes out to those entrepreneurs. This is just part of the cycle. We just happen mm-hmm. to see it being being compressed right now, but there are going to be some amazing businesses that come out of this. And there are going to be other entrepreneurs that, quite frankly, save themselves a lot of heartache. They were going to lose, I don't know, pick a number. You know, getting to the five-year mark was going to cost them half a million dollars or some, some measure of their net worth. Maybe it'll cost them less because they can make the decision to cut early and take their losses now instead of, you know, making it a prolonged exercise. So, Dylan, the, the reason why I'm excited to have you on the podcast here is because uh, there, you know a lot of the people that listen to to this uh, podcast are entrepreneurs, business owners, former entrepreneurs, second time entrepreneurs. But you know, entrepreneurs love hearing from other entrepreneurs, people that have been you know to to the mountaintop, so to speak. So today, more than ever, 
I'm, I'm interested in you and I discussing uh, the State of the Union as, as you see it from, from your vantage point on the capital side and transitioning to, you know, let's call it the post-COVID pivot, right? Where, you know, if you're running a X business, you know, what are some options and maybe some tips and tricks? So, uh, but before we do all that, Dylan, let's, let's take a step back and tell us your story. How did, how did you get, uh, how did you get your start? How'd you end up where you are today? A uh, very close business mentor of mine, almost, shoot, um, how many years ago that maybe, yeah, 20 years ago, um, hired me off the sidewalk. I was walking home one day. He asked me if I could cut his grass. I said, sure. Next thing you knew, I was working for him in a real estate um, investment business. We were financing second mortgages on real estate developments and construction projects at high interest rates before it was sort of a thing. Um, and then that market evolved. Uh, we ended up working together and taking a, a company public. So I learned about what, what, what goes on when that happens. And then went out on my own back in 2001 and formed Bridge Capital. Um, during our height, we were one of the most successful independent brokerages in the country. And when the financial crisis hit, which was, you know, sort of my first, uh, head on experience with what happens when, when the markets don't work in your favor, uh, we did a pivot. Yeah, uh, we had to figure out how to keep the business going and moving and, and capitalize on opportunities. And it was at that point that I uh, focused more on private lending, which I had been doing for the decades leading up to that and uh, had made the pivot to work with businesses that were sort of small to medium size, uh, go in when they're broken, uh, look to add a lot of value and then look to exit when they've been fixed and when they're worth more. And that's currently how uh, our team current uh, still spends our days. So that's sort of the arc went from the, Pure lending side, foreclosures, um, putting stuff into receivership, and then uh, learned how to take stuff out of receivership, uh, get involved with companies that were fundamentally very strong, but maybe just didn't have all the pieces that they needed because as they grow, um, they tend to fall apart a little bit. Yeah, and so that's the shortest version of my story. You know, and it's, there's, uh, there, there's no there's no shortage of stories within that story, <laughs> but that's that's the, that's the easy arc of, of what I've done so far. I, I can honestly say you're uh, the only one that I've met that uh, can honestly say he got a sidewalk MBA in business. <laughs> so. Unbelievable. No question, Martin. Yep. <laughs> so 2008 uh, compared to 2020, I mean, the last uh, financial uh, crisis, if you want to call it that, that was man-made. Uh, this one seems to be a little bit more synthetic, uh, I guess, if you want to call it that. Are there any similarities or parallels you can draw uh, from 12 years ago to today? Great question. Um, because while the circumstances are different, the outcomes I think are going to be very similar. Um, what I, I mean, I can recall it just like it was yesterday, but February of 2009 was for me personally the very lowest point in the market when the credit markets had literally froze. We had mortgages for homeowners, for commercial investors ready to fund, and they, within hours, I mean, I'm talking 24, 48 hours, the mortgage commitments were no longer going to be honored by lenders um, and investors. I mean, it, it was unbelievable to experience if you were in the finance business. And what I, what I recall was thinking to myself, you know what, tomorrow it's going to be okay. You know what, next week? No, next week. Next week it's going to go back to normal. You know what? Mm -hmm. Maybe like next month, 
you know what? I think by June, I know <laughs> it's only February, but by May or June, yeah, this is all going to blow over and it's going to be just like it was. And I can tell you that that just never happened. I mean, certainly the market returned, but it, it was it was simply not the same. Um, the regulations and the laws for financing had changed. Uh, the underwriting criteria and due diligence done by investors and lenders had changed. And it wasn't even like, you know, Marcin, you couldn't wake up on March the 15th and go, that was the moment everything changed. It was only by the time you got to September, October, November of 20, uh, 2009 that you could look back and go, wow, like, look at where we've come over six months. Like, everything is different. I mean, yeah, people still need mortgages and lenders and investors are still going to fund stuff, but the bar now that has to be achieved is so high. And if mm-hmm. I parallel that even against what happened in uh, 9-11, uh, it was sort of the same thing. You know, the next thing you knew when you went to get on an airplane, everything was different and you could never imagine what it was like before. And so I feel that uh, the parallel this time is, um, is when whenever people think the normal is whatever the new normal is, you know, Mark Cuban's calling it the, the uh, U.S. economy 2.0. But whenever mm-hmm. that has actually settled into place, I think we're going to look back and see that uh, we're, it, it's never going to be like it was in January of 2020 or December of 2019. The, the, it, everything structurally is going to be different. How businesses interact with their customers is going to be different. It's going to be incredibly different. But the similarity is, as an entrepreneur, is to not base your plans on thinking that it's going to go back to what it was, uh, because that certainly is just not going to be the case. You know, it's, um, I mean, you're absolutely right. I even think back to, you know, 9-11 and, you know, post 9-11, everything from travel to shipping to logistics to freight all the way to you know just at a at a day to, daily uh you know for, for a day-to-day difference for for just anybody going on vacation everything changed yeah i don't i don't even think we've begun to be, begin to appreciate the changes that are going to ensue um i was i was listening to a friend tell me that you know you have a new habit takes 21 days to develop so habitually we've all now this whole social distancing thing has become second nature. So even when, you know, it's quote unquote, okay to go outside and, you know, interact, uh, how long before people are comfortable going to a restaurant? How long before you'll actually go to a basketball game? It, it's, it's really, it, it's going to be, so there's going to be a new normal. Yeah. From the financial crisis, I wish someone would have, would have told me that. I don't know that I would have listened because it was my first time working mm-hmm. through a down cycle. And unfortunately, I think entrepreneurs learn better when they're in the thick of it. They don't necessarily listen to uh, advice. But um, I wish someone would have just said, Dylan, just if there was one thing you could believe me on, believe me that your business and the market are not going to be like they were. We don't know what it's going to look like, but what we can tell you for sure is it's not going to be the same. So begin thinking about your business through a different lens. So, Dylan, what were the common traits, whether you contrast 2001 or 2008 slash 9 to more prosperous times between those entrepreneurs and business owners that gave them the ability to work their way through? Were there any commonalities between the guys that uh, are around today? Yeah, no question. Uh, and, uh, and again, I wish I could have 
they had the attribute by being uh, fluid, being um, responsive, and being able to have a bit of a playbook where each day you can measure the results and adjust accordingly. Um, I was, because again, I hadn't had the reference point of experience, um, I was still using kind of my, what I knew about my business as my playbook. And I was using all of the same variables, margins, you know, how we generated business. I was using all of those same factors uh, to just to guide my my actions going forward. Whereas I think entrepreneurs that made it and, and, and doubled down and did really well were the ones that could be nimble, quick, and they could adapt. And I don't think that's any different today, um, other than we have much better tools in terms of technology that we can use as entrepreneurs to be uh, more nimble and more quick and to adjust on the fly. I guess we might end up calling this this podcast the post-COVID pivot because, you know, you really you really think to yourself, you're you're in the middle of it now. You know, businesses have had to had to adjust. Uh, you know, you, you see the the restaurants with the, uh, you know, mainly relying on the takeout business. And, you know, I saw a commercial for TELUS where they uh, they don't do the installation in your home anymore. They just literally have a technician uh, do FaceTime with you and uh, they show you how to install your own modem or whatever it is. And I just thought to myself, wow, this is kind of like a Jetsons, you know, cartoon, right, with the... You know the way the the world is uh, is moving today. What uh, what are you what are you seeing in the um, in the traditional businesses? Like for example, if any thoughts on mechanics, plumbers, hairdressers, like how how do these guys pivot in times like this? I think that answer is unique to the vertical, right? So I think a hairdresser mm-hmm. versus a, versus a mechanic. Um, but I can share with you a live, uh, live example from a business that I'm invested in. Uh, we're in the hazardous materials business. So mm-hmm. uh, we do industrial and commercial um, uh, abatement, take asbestos out of stuff, hazardous materials, biohazard, that sort of thing. So what we ended up doing, you know, and, and adjusting on the fly quickly was moving our team. Um, we, we needed to be, there's still work in the marketplace, but everyone is uncertain as to how that work is going to get done. A lot of the stuff we do is public tender. So we needed a mechanism to encourage those tenders to still move forward by working with the contractors. And so we were able to, which we've never done historically because the pressure point wasn't there, but we really needed to find um, a mechanism for getting these jobs going. So we were able to, um, over the course of the last eight weeks, we've been able to bid uh, tighter on our jobs. Part of the way we were able to do that was by moving our labor force onto piecework instead of hourly, and that allowed us to crystallize our labor costs and then help our contractors save money um, and get their projects moving. Mm-hmm. And then, and then being able, more importantly, being able to share with our contractors in the absence of having um, um, mandates from OHNS or the government in terms of safety precautions. Here's what we're doing on site. And being able to lay out for them how we get our workers uh, to the site, off the site, what happens when they're on the site. And then all of a sudden what's happened is contractors are now adopting our policies and we're now being seen as something of a of an expert in our particular domain. Not because we're special, but just because we recognize that there was uncertainty around how to deploy labor into a field that where work needs to be done. And by just simply thinking about it and using our expertise to lay it out. 
uh, we've been able to get some leverage off of that and open some doors as well. So I think there's a couple things in there. I think no matter the vertical that you're in, I think the first thing that you can do is try to communicate to the marketplace, maybe not so much that you're aware that COVID exists, because I think we're all getting bombed with those kind of emails right now. But I think being able to say, in light of what we're up against, here is how our business is going to conduct itself. And in the absence of regulations and hard and fast rules, here's what we're doing. And so we would love to continue mm-hmm. to service you under this type of a setup. And so whether you're a hairdresser or you're a plumber or you're a shot technician, uh, simply being able to tell your customers how you can service them in light of the current challenges that are being faced with social distancing and that sort of thing um, mm-hmm. is what allows you to now become something of an authority or certainly someone that has done the work to to give guidance and customers today are are looking for that right if you're considering uh, working with somebody uh, you're, you're you're more prone to work with a company or an entrepreneur that has demonstrated to you that they're aware of all of the things you're nervous about and how they've addressed them to make it very easy to work with them. You know, it's a good point. I think to myself, even within a business, I'm a partner and we do security and automation services. And uh, you're exactly right. You know, remote installations for security systems, uh, you know, all these different components, demonstrating to the customer how you can still service them and provide for their, you know, needs and their services. And, you know, in in lieu of direction from the government, uh, whether it's provincial or federal, you know, you set your best standards. And, you know, ironically, that ends up becoming, you know, mirrored by other participants in whatever industry you're in, if you set it up right. I'm also involved in a heavy duty transportation business. And it's, you know, the same thing because I, you know, this is not my first rodeo. Um, you know, we made adjustments very quick to the dismay of our staff and our customers because they thought that maybe we were um, getting ahead of ourselves. Now we've proven out that we did, we weren't. Um, mm-hmm. But same thing, you know, we immediately put up signage, we immediately locked the doors. But more importantly than that, we got on the phone with every single one of our customers and said, even though you know that this is happening in the marketplace, we're looking to be way out in front. And so now if you'd like us to work um, on your equipment, this is going to be our policy and our procedure. Um, here's a new phone number that we've set up so that you get a direct dial into our general manager who can make sure that if you have any kind of concerns um, or you need a status update because you're not near your equipment now that you can get it. So I think it's not just recognizing that there's a problem, but you know the good old entrepreneur um, adage of always provide the solution to the problem. Don't just you know provide uh, insight into the problem. And so mm-hmm. as an entrepreneur going and saying, this is how we are doing what we do in light of the problem, I think that that helps to get a little bit of an edge today. And, and it gives you an opportunity to position yourself as a leader in your market when everybody else is looking for direction as well. So couldn't, couldn't agree more. So uh, I guess a related question with the remote working becoming the standard fare uh, regardless you know, I look out my window here in Toronto and I see a 60-some-odd story office building going up right now. And you know, I think to myself, you know, the law firm that's going to end up in here, do they really need four or five or six floors if all these lawyers are working from home right now? Um, what are your thoughts on, you know, not just the whole remote working situation as it is, but, you know, borrowing your your, your comment from earlier when we have you know, the economy 2.0, 
how do you think that's going to trickle through with, you know, offices and remote working? Any thoughts? Yeah, I got lot, you know, lots of thoughts on that topic for sure. Um, you know, I think that, uh, I know there's different camps and there's people that there's sort of two big camps that say it's not going to go back to the way it was at all. And there's other people that say, no, you know, it's going to go back to the way it was because people want to be around people. They have this, this theory that now gets played out a little bit. And I, I'm a, I'm a generation X and I, I've grown up and had my business career in, in the shadow of, of uh, baby boomers who are big on, you know, suit and tie, office, uh, structured schedules. But I've, because I'm Generation X, I've also now had to hire millennials and younger. And you see that there's a, there's just a gap there where, where millennials and younger don't really understand why you would get in your car, spend an hour in traffic, go sit at a desk, work for eight hours get away from your desk, go back to your car, drive for an hour and get home. Like to them, that doesn't, that is inconsistent with the life that they have come to understand, which is they can do what they want, when they want, how they want. Mm-hmm. But I think that because of the, the business environment, they were not able to really uh, give that a go, if you will. Mm-hmm. And so they begrudgingly right, went into the workplace. But I think that what we're going to see is that the millennials and younger are really going to demonstrate to Gen X and the boomers that A, we can get the job done and B, we actually do it better. And, mm-hmm. uh, we can, we can arguably do more by giving us control over, uh, our work schedule and how we work. So it's more about working when we want to work in the place we want to work versus you telling us what to do and where to do it. And I don't think this is like a, a negative thing. It just seems to me to be a very prevalent factor in the marketplace that the millennials just below them that are now coming into the, the market right at this moment where we're going to experience a cultural shift. And I think it plays well into their hands. And at the same time, I think it forces uh, Gen X and baby boomers to really understand how to use the tools that are out there and ultimately arrive at what is going to be a, a, a more balanced workplace instead of an imbalanced workplace with an enormous amount of efficiency in it between, you know, drive time and sitting in the office and you're just not getting the same productivity that that I think we're going to see you can get going forward. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's interesting as, as I listen to you, I think to myself, you know, take the, take the career path you want. And even if the uh, employees are able to negotiate one day, two days, three days a week where they can work from home, or even maybe they can do their entire job from home. You know, you think about all the indirect uh, impact that'll have on, you know, the food courts, the malls, the uh, the auto shops, the, the need to buy a car, Uber, transportation, like it, you know, it really does transition a lot of other businesses without even thinking too much about it. I know in our construction business, I've got a team of five project managers. Um, one of them's a boomer, one of them is Gen X, and three of them are millennials. And the output right now over the past eight weeks from our millennials is insane. Uh, we do a, a Zoom call every single day to kick our day off. And, mm-hmm. and it, it's efficient and, you know, guys have their cup of coffee. Um, and then they're off and running. And then throughout the day, our project management system uh, allows us to get pictures and daily logs of what's going on on each of the sites. 
And like these millennials, they're just super, super efficient um, because they, 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 they covet their freedom so much. Right. Um, mm-hmm. And now they're in a, now they're in a, in a work structure where they really get to decide um, how they want to run their day and they're getting the job done and they're doing it really well. Whereas the Gen X and the boomer, um, it's, they almost, it's strange to see them. Uh, and these are generalizations of course, but it's strange to see them uh, trying to make good use of that freedom. Like they, they almost crave <laughs> the structure a little bit. Like they, <laughs> they want to know they're going to sit at their desk at nine o'clock and they want to know that, you know, at lunch they can kind of stand up and go get a coffee and yak with the other guys. Like it, it's just a very, I'm watching it play out in real time and it is interesting to see, but the productivity that we're getting and the uh, quality of work I'm getting out of, three uh, project managers uh, that are millennials is, is really encouraging. And the other two, the other two are fine, but you mm-hmm. can tell it's a struggle for them. Uh, you know, I, yeah, you can, you can, you can see it. I think to myself, uh, you know, some of the, uh, so Skype, you know, the, the video conferencing with Skype, that's the first one that comes to mind. Like This whole zoom call is not a new concept, right? I mean, we've been able to do these calls, whether it's FaceTime or, Skype for for years now, and uh, you know I think I think the millennials were trying to push for this years ago, but you know the people that were typically running or operating the companies are the people like you said that are used to having their coffee sitting at the desk and didn't really have to explain why they want to do it that way. They just you know they're in charge. So you're right. It's it's now forcing. You know I, I'm working on something right now and. Uh, the gentleman says to me, he goes, well, I can't sign the agreement. I said, why not? He goes, well, I need my fax machine. I go, you have a fax machine. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, like, I'm like, and I didn't mean it. I didn't mean to make fun of it. I just, I was, I was just shocked. I'm like, can you send me a picture? Like, is it beside your Commodore? Where's this thing? Like, yeah, like 1980 <laughs> called and they want their uh, fax machine back. Yeah, that's funny. No, but he was dead serious. He had a fax machine. I'm like, well, get DocuSign. So I had to spend 20 minutes to show him what DocuSign was. And I was just like, but, and, 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 you know, I'm closer to, to age to, to you than I am to the, to the, you know, the millennial. But it just, um, yeah, you're right. The, the, uh, the, to an extent, the Gen X and the baby boomers there, some of them are feeling out of place. That's, yeah. Uh, yeah. And then it's, but then they're stuck because they can't afford to not do anything. So they are, I'm encouraged because they are getting up the learning curve. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. even as I think outside of my work environment and think of my family with weekend Zoom calls with grandparents and extended family, like everyone's kind of now figuring out how to do stuff that you're right, has always been available to us, but if the need wasn't there. And now that the need is there, of course, people, people sort it out. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So uh, switching gears here a little bit, with uh with businesses and what you see uh dylan you're you're joining us from uh calgary and the the market there i mean it was already uh you know rough before covid how uh how is the government how i guess what what are you seeing from a government level maybe provincially and federally and what are your thoughts on what uh what what's happening in terms of helping entrepreneurs yeah, I think that, and I think that question is equally applicable to anyone who's operating in any kind of jurisdiction, right? Even in the United mm-hmm. States, as you watch how each of the states are handling their challenges a little differently. But certainly here in Alberta, 
you know, we have, we're getting hit from a couple of sides, of course, oil, um, which was already on the rope before COVID from, um, from sort of a cultural societal perspective, right? Um, mm-hmm. has now just been absolutely, um, slaughtered. Um, then we've got the economic challenges that have come along with COVID. So we're getting hit from all ends. And I think, honestly, I think the governments, rightly so, um, are, are just coming out of, of, um, that 911 moment, right? Where they want to make sure that people have access to capital, that there's resources because, um, you want to make sure no, no one falls through the cracks. But it'll be interesting to see what occurs over the coming months because I don't know that there is anything that the government can really do, um, in order to, to stimulate economic activity. I mean, um, COVID's going to take its natural, um, organic path back to whatever it's going to look like. And that's not unique to Alberta. Uh, the oil industry, however, um, I'm not sure there, there is much that can be done. I don't think it's a wise investment to, um, pump a bunch of money into it. I'm not sure if you've followed at all the orphaned well problem that we have here in Alberta, where we have thousands of wells that have been, um, Abandoned uh, by yeah. oil companies, and it's—I mean—it's just an astronomical amount of money to um, uh, close these wells in properly. But there's there's no there is actually no money to pay for it. So it seems like Alberta, in some respects, Alberta has to be able to pivot somehow, mm-hmm. um, as opposed to maybe doubling down on on you know traditional oil and gas. I think we have a great uh, brain trust here. I think there's a, a lot of of um, uh, there's some great technology businesses. There's the beginnings of an, an ecosystem here, much like what Vancouver and Toronto have access to. And if we could figure out a way to pivot all that that mental energy um, into understanding, you know, energy and green, and, and I, you know, I think there's there is a lot of opportunity here. But I think the government's scrambling to figure out what to, what to do with it. And again, you look at the demographic of most people in government. You know, they're uh, you know, they're at an age and a stage of life where, um, you know, maybe they, they don't even quite understand what the opportunities uh, could be, right? And mm. I don't I don't think that that's any different with our government. I think Kenny's done the best job that anyone could possibly do under these types of circumstances. And of course, nobody is perfect. But when your industry is oil and gas, and oil and gas is, was already out of flavor, and now it's also out of price, um yeah, that's tricky. So I don't think, see the government doing very much other than right now, just trying to make sure that the, the people are taken care of, and then they're going to switch their attention to figuring out what what it means economically. So on the economic side, is it maybe a case of what they can do less of, perhaps less tape, less red tape, less taxes, uh, more of an incentive platform? And, and I, I say this um, you know, just, I guess, fresh in my memory, I just read uh, the U.S. enacted, I don't know if you saw it, but it was something called the CARES Act, where they, they had an amendment uh, to, I believe, the 2017 Jobs Act. I think they just literally launched it maybe 20 or 30 days ago. Uh, and one example of it is that they are allowing business owners to effectively write off their entire CapEx in the year that they uh, assume it. Yeah, I think... I mean, I think that those things are helpful. However, underneath the rubble, I think you need to know how is your province, in, in our case, how is Alberta going to be uh, net positive from, a, mm-hmm. from an earnings perspective, right? I think that the, the tax base certainly is, is one small mechanism, but 
you know, we do we do have resources here and we do have infrastructure. I'm just not sure mm-hmm. we, we have a coherent plan yet on what the best way to use it is. I know that there's sort of the more traditional Albertan that would say just get pipelines going and, and so forth, get our products out of our province. And I understand that argument. I'm not sure I can get all the way there. Um, I, I tend to think more about the technology and the demographics of the workforce that are going to still be here over the coming years. And I think that there's a way to become uh, maybe more of a world expert on energy and become more consultants, build build the technology to help make oil production and uh, gas production even better. But with with an eye to knowing that, you know, we're going to keep turning the tap, you know, uh, closer to being off uh, with every mm-hmm. passing day. So how do we make the most of what's left? And I think that would be our best move. But I don't know. Um, I think fundamentally, you just have to answer the question, at the end of all of this, how do we become net positive from an earnings perspective? And that's a really hard question to answer in Alberta. Well, Alberta, I mean, I spent, I still spend a tremendous amount of time in Alberta. And uh, you're right, it's, 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 it's oil country, it's ingrained in oil. I mean, in the hockey team, the Edmonton Oilers, (laughs) it, uh, it is, it is uh, as close to oil as, as you can get. So, yeah, I know that's uh, a fair comment. I was just going to say, I was speaking with someone that's in the um, in the brokerage business. And, you know, they were sort of lamenting about how frustrated they were. And, and I said, well, you know, the brokerage business is single transaction, right? You do a job for someone, you get paid um, a commission for the, the transaction you brokered, and that's great. But if that was your last deal that you brokered, that's the last dollar you earn. And so your brokerage revenue needs to be a means to parlay into something else or to leverage into something else that has more longevity on it and more of a, a, um, a recurring revenue uh, element. And I don't think it's very different for Alberta. I see that our resource base is there. We know that it's going to be harder to leverage it in the future, but we do have a window of opportunity where with the right kind of thinking, we could leverage it right now and then again, parlay those results into something better that gives us uh, a better economic future. And I'm not sure I see folks really thinking like that. Like you sort of get mm-hmm. folks that are just stuck thinking all we're ever going to do is sell a barrel of oil. And that's unfortunate. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you've got other people that say ignore oil entirely and let's just become, you know, something else. And I don't think that makes any sense either. I think there's a better answer that's between those two points. And you have to be able to bridge the gap, uh, you know, with, with a transition to something that is sustainable and like you said, net positive, right? So I know, I'm not even sure that's any different with anyone who runs a business right now, too, right? I mean, if you mm-hmm. ran before pre, you know, pre-COVID, maybe you had a business that was, you know, not awesome, but it was working. But you know, there's probably with the time that you have right now, there's a way to, to consider how do we parlay this, or how do we leverage this into maybe a new direction, or how do we leverage this into something that we never really were thinking about anymore. But now because of pressure, we have to think about it. And how do we make the most of whatever's left on our balance sheet? How do we make the most of whatever's left in our talent pool? And how can we reconfigure it so that post-COVID, whenever that is, even if it's happening right now, that we emerge from this uh, better and have a better view for the future than what it looked like pre-COVID? Well, and it's it's interesting that, you know, you say that I, I kind of prompts my, my next question for you here. I was reading, as, as you probably were as well, about the uh, two planes that came back from China without any masks because they uh, they couldn't uh, stay, stay on the runway for much longer. I don't know if you, you saw that article. No, uh, I didn't. Uh, no, I didn't. I was, 
Well, then I'll, I'll give you the the, the sort of thirty thousand foot. There was uh, two two planes flew over to uh to, to forget which town in China. They were there for uh, they were there to pick up masks uh, to bring them back to Canada, but they were on the ground for too long, and uh, according to the to the law, they they had to leave, uh, which basically meant they flew back to Canada with no masks, and um, you know that that kind of prompted me to think to myself. You know, in, in this highly globalized economy today where everybody is so dependent on everybody else. I mean, you get watermelons from Mexico, you get, you know, beans from Colombia, like everything is so vertically integrated. Do you see, um, just from where you're sitting, Dylan, do you see, you know, the post-COVID economy becoming much more localized, if that makes sense? You know, I thought I actually thought the economy was already on its way to doing that. Um, mm. So I think COVID has been a bit of an accelerant. And where mm -hmm. I get my my thinking from is if I watch, as you and I would appreciate here in Canada, the success of Shopify, it seems to me that whereas Amazon has sort of been uh, this very big machine that has has addressed the common things that most people need, you know, books, toilet paper, toothpaste, hair product, etc. Shopify seems to have like carved themselves a little spot in the world for artisans that can't mass produce their goods, um, that are able to command a higher margin for a product or per SKU. And I, it kind of felt to me like we were already starting to see the emergence of millennials that don't want, that want uh, extreme uniqueness. And the only way to get extreme uniqueness is to not wear the T-shirt that everybody in the marketplace is wearing or to not have the same pair of shoes or to not have the same furniture in your apartment. And so there was going to be this emergence of, you know, I use Betty, who's my local artisan, to get this thing that I know nobody else has. And that now is mm -hmm. what gives me, that's what I now find valuable is the uniqueness of the things that I desire and the things I spend my money on. Um, so I was, already, you know, I think that that trend was already happening, and and COVID to me seemed like an accelerant on what was already there. And um, mm -hmm. when we we think about um, the products and services that we're going to be buying, we're going to want to know the people behind them. I think I think we're going to want to know who the owners are. I think we're going to want to know the staff and the people, and can we trust them because we're super nervous about our health, and um, and that is going to lead to this this. Um, you know, it just sort of comes full circle, right? Like, you know, hundreds of years ago, everything was local. You went and got your bread, and your, you know, your chicken and your tomatoes, and you went home and you made a meal. <laughs> and I, I think we're going to, you know, nothing is truly new, right? It's just a reinvention of the old. And I think we're just watching full circle this idea of coming back uh, local uh, really being key. And I even think Airbnb was a demonstration of that, right? Um, mm -hmm. If you got the opportunity to stay in a Marriott, and your room looks like the other 300 rooms in the building uh, in a given city, but you can go and stay at someone's home um, and get sort of a local uh, experience. We were already seeing how popular uh, that was becoming. And um, I think we're going to continue to see that, that trend, that general trend. Yeah, it's a, uh, it's a fair point. And I mean, the, uh, the hotel industry, I mean, it, it goes without saying that being in the hotel industry right now, you're, you're in for, for, for a bumpy ride. But uh, the the Airbnb side of it, even when you know things do turn, uh, you're right. I mean, those uh, individualized experiences, you know, by and large, will will still be there. For, for yeah, I many think there's people. like a there's like a level of 
there's like a there's a foundational um element you know like a you know the toilet paper and the just the basic necessities of life that you know why would you keep going to the grocery store to buy toilet paper when you can just hit order from Amazon and it shows up every two weeks so mm-hmm. I think Amazon and technology and and the evolution of what we've seen in the market has taken care of those needs and now the needs that are left the things that we now choose to actually spend our time on because we're not going to buy toilet paper at the grocery store every two weeks um, not anymore not anymore. We want it to be. Uh, <laughs> we want it to be hyper personalized. We want it to yeah. be hyper hyper unique, and we will no longer spend our time on what I would call kind of frivolous, dumb things. And that is exactly what we're also seeing in the workforce, right? Millennials are now saying, "I think it's dumb to spend an hour in my car to sit at a desk to then spend another hour in my car." Tell you what, just mm-hmm. let me do my thing. Let me have my own unique way of working. I will get the job done. I will be more productive. And that will that will just carry that trend will carry through uh, through most everything in the economy, I believe. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's uh, I'm kind of chuckling here because uh, you know, as we're recording this, people are just coming off the uh, the self-imposed crisis of the toilet paper wars. Yeah. Right? Where we... <laughs> yeah. I had a meme that was sent to me, a little graphic where it was a. A shred of toilet paper left on the on the on the brown uh, roll thing, and it said, "You know, there's still a lot of meat on the bone on this one." <laughs> <laughs> that is that is so funny. I did read there was someone who had done sort of a, I think they had done like a, a psychoanalysis on you know what's the deal here? Why is everyone freaking out over toilet paper? Right. And uh, and I I was quite interested in in the findings, and it sort of related back to as as individuals when we feel like our world is out of control we need to be able to control something and in this particular mm-hmm. instance toilet paper sort of emerged as the, the, the thing <laughs> that we chose to exercise our, our quote-unquote control over and it was really just a it's quite interesting to hear how how a psychotherapist or a psychologist maybe i don't know which uh, talks about it because it adds a bit of a different element to it Hmm. Yeah, that that'd be an interesting. I feel like there's yeah. a book coming from somebody on yeah, that. Yeah, oh, for sure there is. Hundred yeah. percent. Where, yeah. Where where's the to, you know where's the toilet paper? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so so Dylan, if you're not in the because um, I mean you you deal with entrepreneurs on a daily basis with your business, right. and if if you're not in the uh, you know in the in the toiletry business and you're you're running a business right now, what are some of the you know, if, if you just met an entrepreneur on the street that was running a business and asked you for, you know, to give to give them some advice, what are two or three things that you would share with them, given where we're at in the world today, in terms of what they could do to? Sure. Um, well, the playbook that we've been following, so I, I would base it off of that in our portfolio of companies, is making sure we touch every customer. And that involves, you know, not sending a COVID-19 email uh, that, yes, we're aware of it. But, you know, having a meaningful interaction with them, you know, we use technology like HubSpot. We see the emails that go out. We watch what we've micromanaged what people are uh, clicking through on so that we can then give them a personalized response to what they're doing. But it would be getting in touch with your customers and really understanding called the gap calculation, as we call it. You know, it's sort of, you know, last year at this time, what were your sales across how many customers and what was your sale per customer? And then this year. You know, how many customers, how many sales per customer. And the difference in that math shows you the gap that you have to fill in. Um, And then it should give you instruction on saying, okay, well, here's how many customers we need and how are we going to go find them? 
So the first advice would be figure out who your customer base is, how many customers are going to keep using you, how many customers are not going to be using you, and then what you need to do now to uh, to fill in the difference. Um, uh, the next thing that I would be doing is, as an entrepreneur, I would be evaluating the product or service that my business offers, and I would be saying, let me assume that nothing is the same as it was before, but this is still the mechanism that I have available to me to generate revenue. How do I do that? Um, how do I change the experience that my customers have with my business now in light of the fact that there are distancing rules and there's people that aren't going to want to interact with us the way they did before? Um, do we move the experience online? Do we create a mechanism you know, like Zoom or Skype where we have a different way to interact with our customers? Do we change how we deliver our products and our services to our customers? Mm. All, all in the context of trying to fill in that gap. And then lastly, starting to envision um, what's going to happen with your competition. Um, because if, if you're of a mindset where you can think proactively, uh, doesn't mean you're correct, but even the ability to think proactively about what your marketplace is going to look like and make some, um, have a thesis like I do, um, on our businesses, um, but have some assumptions and then see if you can't get out in front of your competitors and try to understand why they're not going to succeed and uh, use that as your as your indication of what you need uh, to do better. So a quick example might be if you're not the largest player in your marketplace um, and there's a competitor that's larger than you are, try to figure out where the cracks are going to be for them because as a very large, you know, if, if the company is larger than you, they're not going to be as nimble, they're not going to be as quick, they're not going to be as fluid. It takes a few days for me to call 200 customers, whereas my competitor, that might not even be on their radar. Mm-hmm. So you look you look for the openings to say to yourself, how can I, if this was a race, how can I move from like fourth place in the market up to third or second? What would need to happen? And and then just start playing it out because you've got time right now. And, um, you know, so examine the gap in your business, figure out what your business is going to look like, and then look at your competitors to figure out how you're going to go and beat them. And that's literally mm-hmm. uh, the conversation that our teams have on a daily basis. And I love it. And it's not, it's not. And with a negative undertone, it's with very much a positive undertone because someone's got to be a leader in the marketplace. And being a leader means hanging your neck out there a little bit. It means trying to chart some new territory. And as you've heard earlier, um, for us, that meant going to our customers, acknowledging the problem, but then very quickly saying to them, here's how you can still take advantage of our products and services. And here's what we've done to protect you in light of all the things you're nervous about right now. And the next thing you know, boom, we're starting to close that gap uh, in our business. Mm-hmm. So what are the rules of the new economy and how do I win? And that's it. And the great part is the, the best entrepreneurs out there are actually going to rewrite the rules. That you know, It's still going to be months and months until the governments give any kind of mandate on how to interact with, with each other. And that, to me, presents just an ideal window for an innovative entrepreneur who's looking to capitalize on opportunity because you can set the bar. And then the next mm-hmm. thing you know, you're the reference point for everyone else in the marketplace. And then the next thing you know, you've now, you now have control over market share that you couldn't have even dreamed having control over before. Why? Because you just took initiative to go in and rewrite the rules based on how you, uh, on how you see them. Um, and that's going to, that's going to help you win. You've created a narrative that suits your business goals. That is the right narrative for whatever industry you're in. And all of a sudden, 100%. you become the leader because you set the rules. And if if you have if your competition is worth their weight, uh, mm-hmm. they will try to do it better than you. 
And then that's great because now that gives you something to rub up against. Um, I know the industries that we're involved in, the competition is there, but not from a competitive perspective. It's more just from a market share perspective. But um, I, I certainly would love to be involved in a marketplace where competitors are on the tips of their toes as well. Um, because someone has to win. And this is a great time for you to test some theories, try some initiatives, um, undertake some, some tactics, and see where they end up. And if you get some pushback where you see your competitors adjusting, then that gives you something to work, uh, you know, to, ba- to bounce what you're doing off of. Mm-hmm. You know, I as I was growing up, I, I, I used to compete in judo competitively uh, across North America. And uh, judo, if you're familiar with it, you don't punch, you don't kick. It's all about counter moves and moves. And with judo, you would use your opponent's weight and momentum against them. Sure. And yep. uh, effectively, you know, uh, this is, you know, this is the time that we're in today is you have to take what's being thrown at you and see if you can use that as the reason why what you're doing will work. And, yeah. And uh, I, and I get it. I think you'd acknowledge it too, that, the, you know, there's a moment to, to have your head in the sand. Yes. Um, but it can only be a moment. Um, only you have be to, a moment. Some, yeah, at some point you got to say to yourself, okay, I get it. Um, nothing's going to change. All these smart people are saying that it's going to be a new, new, but I can kind of determine what the new, new is going to be and then just get going. You know, um, you have absolutely nothing to lose. So, Dylan, where are the opportunities in our post COVID world? My, I think that the, the obvious opportunities are any business that isn't necessarily uh, scalable to an Amazon level, right? So I'm involved in businesses that have you know, mechanics, um, laborers, construction workers, like hands-on people. And I think it's being able to create a new work environment for laborers because I think that labor is only going to want to go to where they're going to feel protected from the things you know, from COVID, from, from other pandemic type scenarios and companies that can really do a great job protecting their staff and being seen as that uh, company in the marketplace are going to do really well. And then on the flip side, on the customer side, I think companies that are able to deliver a highly customized experience, whether it's food, whether it's, uh, um, like, you know, uh, restaurants, whether it's grocery, whether it's haircutting or plumbing, think that customers are really going to want to know who the company is. And so the opportunity is for a business to become hyper-personal again and personable, Um, being able to relate to customers, being able to empathize with them, and more importantly, customers understanding that that's what they're doing. And and I don't think there's any business that, you know, I'm not sure I'd want to own a hotel today per se, but... Mm -hmm. Well, only because they don't have enough experience in understanding the business model of, of the hotel in light of, you know, Airbnb and so forth. But I don't think any business is off limits because fundamentally every business is providing a product and service that the market needs. All we're, all that's happened is we're now forced into a moment where those delivery mechanisms, uh, have to evolve. And it's really up to the entrepreneur to decide how they're going to evolve that. That is a quick example I can give you is I know of, of an entrepreneur that I've been helping out who is involved in um, uh, roof racks that go on top of vans and trucks that hold ladders. And he came up with a patent and an idea where it makes it easier to do that and all this sort of stuff. And, you know, he called me and, and you know, was, was sharing with me the challenges that he was having. And then I said, yeah, I think you're, maybe your business just doesn't work, right? And then all of a sudden he just said, no, no, man, 
He says, this is our strategy. <laughs> and he laid out perfectly because he understood his customer. He understood the problem his business was solving. He understood how to take the, the, uh, the, co- the COVID and the distancing um, challenge and turn it into a solution through his product. And I, I mean, I was amazed. Because I certainly, as smart as I think I am, um, I just couldn't see it in his business. That's the unique position that every entrepreneur is in. If you know your product, you know your service, you know your customer, you know your market, you just got to spend some time with a cup of coffee right now reimagining what it needs to look like in order to be successful going forward. And then just go and try it. That's um, well said. Well, Dylan, I I don't know how we did it, but we blew through an hour. (laughs) Amazing. (laughs) <laughs> uh, it's uh, it's 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 easy. Um, you know, I I, I appreciate. Uh, you know, I always appreciate uh, speaking with you because you've got uh, you, you know you have the blessing and the curse of dealing with multiple entrepreneurs at any given time. So, you've... <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> well, um, for what it's d- worth, I think you know I think it's entrepreneurs that pull us out of this. Um, yeah, you know, as you as you listen to the to the assistance being given from government, we're watching it generally go to bigger companies right like bailouts and that sort of thing but to me i think history is just so clear that the best entrepreneurs are made in these moments and the best products and the best services and the best delivery mechanisms all come out of these moments and Mm -hmm. so my theory is if i can talk to enough entrepreneurs i'm inevitably going to talk to one that's going to keep our economy going and that that gets me very excited i love it so dylan if uh any of the entrepreneurs or business owners uh, listening to this podcast wanted to get in touch with you, um, how, what's the best way to do that? Yeah, best way is just to look me up on uh, LinkedIn. And then from there, you can kind of find your way to, to everything else. I've got a blog. I've got lots of stuff. Um, pretty pretty visible out in the space if, you, if you're trying to find me. So um, LinkedIn is prob- probably the best place to start. Excellent. Well, I highly recommend to anybody listening to uh, read through a few of your blogs. I've I've, I've read a few a few of them. You've you've always got uh, gems and tidbits there. So, uh, Dylan, I really appreciate you taking the time, and uh, yeah, I look forward to speaking to you again. Mm-hmm.